from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, July 19th. I'm Marco Werman. The battle for Damascus is growing more intense. One activist in the Syrian capital describes the violence he's seeing. There was a funeral procession going on and a helicopter launched a missile from the funeral. Also today, a former North Korean propaganda artist turns against his old masters. And later we find out what bras were like back in the 15th century. One of them has kind of round cups that would have lifted and separated like modern bras. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Russia and China have done it again. For the third time, the two countries have vetoed a United Nations resolution on Syria. The measure would have imposed more sanctions on the Syrian government if it did not pull its troops out of populated areas. Also today, Syrian state TV showed President Bashar al-Assad swearing in a new defense minister. It was Assad's first public appearance since yesterday's bombing in Damascus, which killed his previous defense chief as well as his brother-in-law. Meanwhile, it seems that fighting continues in and around the Syrian capital. That's what one activist who calls himself Tarek told us earlier. I'm in an area that overlooks all Damascus. Smoke plumes were rising up in the sky from the south and from the east from an area called Tabun. That area has been under heavy bombardment since morning. We've heard that the medical staff there uh, just to flee the area because they lack the medical equipment so they can do nothing for the wounded people there. Uh, Outskirts of Damascus also was under heavy shelling from helicopters. Uh, yesterday in at night, uh, we had horrific uh, narrations of a massacre perpetrated in an area called uh, Sidi Zainab. There was a funeral procession going on and the, a helicopter launched a missile over on the uh, funeral. Uh, more than 100 people were killed and more than 200 are uh, injured. Tell me what information you've been able to hear on Syrian TV. Uh, the Syrian TV is living in a very strange state of denial. A couple of hours ago, they said nothing is happening on the ground, so don't believe anything. Don't believe the rumors that the uh, military is, um, for example, withdrawing from uh, the southern parts of the city. A lot of lies are going on in, on TV. I'm curious to know how you reacted to yesterday's attack on uh, Assad's inner circle. I mean, it, the, the opposition got critically close to Assad's control of power. How, how did you feel when you heard that news? We were happy to hear that. Of course, at the same time, we were fearful of any action of retaliations made by the regime itself or by its militia. And actually, yesterday in the evening, we've heard uh, some narrations that some uh, armed militias 
went into the areas in the south that are being under bombardment with knives and they tried to perpetrate massacres there. They got into one of the areas and they killed some civilians, but in other areas, the Free Syrian Army faced them and just uh, stood in their face. Damascus today is living a very strange situation. Now the streets are almost empty. People are getting their food, they are storing some food because no one knows how long this fight might take. Today, the bakeries are crowded. Some of them are closed because they don't have wheat. There is lack in uh, some of the basic uh, materials and uh, food. People are optimistic and at the same time they are fearful of the losses that we might face until we get our uh, goals fulfilled. Given how empty the streets are right now, Tarek, uh, how are you uh, biding your time? Are you staying inside? Do you have anybody around you or are you alone in an apartment? For me, I'm staying with uh, my family and some other families also inside our houses. People in the southern part of the city, they, they were forced to flee the areas because of the heavy bombardment. So we took them into our houses and we're trying to find some empty houses to get them inside. The humanitarian situation is really bad. Every now and then I go out to the streets just to see the situation or I just look at the city from above uh, to see how things are going on. Uh, Beside that, we have uh, our own network of reporters. Each one tell us what he sees or she sees in her or, or his own area. You know, the violence has been seemingly slow to build in Damascus throughout the uprising over the last uh, 16 months or so. Now that you're in the thick of some pretty violent conflict there in the capital, how's it affected your resolve in the fight? Uh, That's the tricky part of Damascus. You will find the city living normally till the last minute when everything will just uh, explode. What happened really on Friday, the regime forces waged an attack on Tadamon and uh, before that on the camp, uh, the Palestinians' camp. The Free Syrian Army found himself uh, forced to defend the civilians and the residents of those areas. So it uh, turned to what we see today uh, as the, the big battle. We're not sure if this will be the final battle, but of course I can say that we hope that this is the end and we will be in a free Syria very soon. An activist calling himself Tarek, speaking with us from Damascus. Borzu Daragahi is Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. He's been covering the fighting in Syria from Beirut. He's not surprised that anti-Assad forces shifted the focus of their struggle to Damascus this week. I'm getting, you know, sort of information from activists saying that 70% of the Free Syrian Army at this point are not defecting soldiers, but just people who've lost uh, relatives in the last year and a half of fighting and have decided to take up arms uh, seeking uh, uh, revenge and justice for their loved ones. And so what it seems like is that what was once a peaceful protest movement in these parts of the capital has now turned into a uh, armed insurrection uh, uh, that is directed against the uh, Syrian regime uh, Uh, And this is something the Syrian regime must be terrified of. Right. And as we said earlier, somebody got very close to the inner circle of of that regime, uh, claiming the life yesterday of, among others, Syria's defense minister. Do you have any better information on who did that? And more specifically, how did anti-Assad forces get so physically close to the government's inner circle? Well, I think, again, you know, uh, the, the capital has long been uh, uh, populated by people who are naturally inclined against uh, uh, Syria's regime. As these forces became more and more 
uh, armed, this sort of became inevitable um, because you're talking about janitors and cleaners and uh, lower-ranking officers and so on. According to one uh, Turkish news agency report, the bomb was placed by a non-commissioned officer uh, who uh, uh, was actually targeting Bashar himself. Uh, according to other opposition sources, uh, this was uh, in a box of chocolates, according to the Daily Telegraph. I don't know. I think there's a lot of rumors and propaganda going around. Um, but this kind of event became uh, inevitable as a once peaceful uh, opposition movement uh, demanding citizenship rights uh, was met with extreme violence and resorted to militarization to fight back. Yeah, as for big pictures of what the bombing means, the White House said yesterday's bombing shows that Assad is losing control of Syria. How accurate is that assessment? You know, huge swaths of the country are already under opposition control. Um, I talked to one activist uh, just uh, yesterday who was telling me that um, the uh, Free Syrian Army people are even kind of contemplating setting up a system of ID cards uh, so that they can identify friend and foe. Um, they are getting their act together, and this has been going on for long enough now. In addition, they have the template in the Libyan uprising, uh, and I think there's a lot of lessons learned in terms of governance, in terms of setting up uh, uh, the machinery of a revolution uh, that they're drawing lessons from. I mean, what do you think will define a tipping point for Assad when most of the country is under opposition control and he's alone with his family in the presidential palace? Based on what I saw in Libya, people like this are not like normal people who make normal calculations. They are caught up in their own illusions and delusions. And so, uh, you know, I, I have a feeling that he will fight until the very, very bitter end uh, because he is uh, convinced that, you know, what he is doing is uh, uh, is right and that, you know, he is standing up for his country and his family and his tribe and his sect. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if there's going to be any kind of nice uh, end game when, um, you know, there's a tipping point and he makes a rational decision uh, that it's time to uh, hand over power or something like that. I think it'll end in a you know bloody way because that's how it started. And meanwhile, the diplomats are still trying to get their act together at the U.N. What's going on there? China and Russia have vetoed the latest uh, measures to uh, impose harsher sanctions on Syria. You know, this is just totally unconnected. This is a red herring. Um, this is a battle that is about supply lines. It's about food lines in terms of getting supplies and, and weapons and ammunition to the rebels. Uh, it's about whether or not Russia and Iran can get weapons to the Syrian regime. That's what matters at this point, um, not what some diplomats in the halls of the uh, UN building are saying or not saying. The Financial Times' Borzu Daragahi speaking with us from Beirut. Borzu, thank you for the update. Always a pleasure. When the revolution in Egypt was getting close to toppling President Hosni Mubarak, the longtime ruler tried to weather the storm by appointing a new vice president. That was Omar Suleiman. The appointment did not appease the protesters, but it did shine a spotlight on one of Mubarak's closest advisors. Well, today, Omar Suleiman died. He reportedly suffered a heart attack while undergoing tests at a hospital in Cleveland. He was 76. The world's Matthew Bell is in Cairo, where Suleiman was once a powerful figure. Omar Suleiman was first and foremost, Marco, a master spy. He was the head of military intelligence for many years. Then he was the head of general intelligence. He was known as, as being fiercely anti-Islamist. Many of them suffered under Omar Suleiman's uh, general intelligence services. Uh, so many Egyptians will look at the news of, of Suleiman's death and, and be happy. Well, what do most of the people on the ground say about Suleiman? I mean, he wasn't just a shadowy spy. Some say he was a killer, as you say, a torturer. 
Right. And his legacy is complicated. There's definitely a segment of Egyptian society that will say he was a patriot. Um, however, there, there's a large segment of Egyptian society that will will see him as just that. And, and I talked to uh, an Egypt expert, Omar Ashur, from the University of Exeter about this. He told me that uh, many Egyptians will see Suleiman as, as a killer. For many, he was a mass murderer. Uh, ma many of the Egyptian citizens were killed uh, and tortured uh, under, the, uh, di under his directions. What was Omar Suleiman's uh, attitude toward Mubarak's rule uh, as that rule was uh, coming to a quick end last year? You'll remember, Marco, that it was Omar Suleiman who was the one that came on television on February 11th last year and actually announced that uh, Hosni Mubarak was was stepping down. Uh, a couple of weeks before that, Suleiman became Egypt's first vice president in 30 years in what was uh, seen as an attempt to sort of appease the the protests that were that were going on here. But Omar Suleiman, I'm sure, died with uh, a lot of secrets. Uh, the legend is that he had this uh, quote-unquote black box, that he had a lot of dirt on a lot of people, some of them very powerful, uh, and it's not clear if we'll ever know what was in that black box. For someone who has been described by some in Egypt a a as a killer, uh, it's interesting that some people there also believe he could have been president of Egypt if he had lived. That's right, Marco. He, in April, he launched a, a campaign to run for president, and um, he was seen as uh, uh, bringing a message of law and order. I think uh, someone like Omar Suleiman would would definitely get certain Egyptians' attention when he was running for president. Turns out he, he tried to get enough signatures uh, to get on the ballot, but fell just short of it, so he was disqualified. As controversial as Omar Suleiman was, do you think the unanswered questions are a major inconvenience for Egypt right now at this moment in its history? You know, I think Omar Suleiman historically incredibly important. Uh, since the presidential election, however, I, I'm not sure he was uh, nearly so relevant. And I think a lot of the, the political intrigue here has boiled down to a competition between the military on the one hand and then the Muslim Brotherhood on the other hand. But, but Omar Suleiman, the man, uh, was gone and has been gone for a long time. I'm not sure how relevant he was when he died. The world's Matthew Bell speaking with us from Cairo about the death of Egypt's former vice president, Omar Suleiman. Matthew, thanks so much. Glad to do it, Marco. Still ahead, watch your wallet in London. The Olympics are coming on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. North Korea isn't known for its art. Most of it either praises the government or criticizes the regime's enemies. But a North Korean defector who is trained as a propaganda artist back home is now turning the canvas on his former government. He goes by the name Sung Byok, and his work has appeared in exhibitions around the world. Reporter Jason Struther recently spoke with him in Seoul. Sung Byok was washing off his paintbrushes when I arrived at his studio. It's a small cubicle he rents on the second floor of a warehouse. Stacked up against the walls are some of the 42-year-old's paintings, including an unusual portrait. From the neck down, it's Marilyn Monroe from The Seven-Year Itch. 
but above is the pudgy face of the late North Korean ruler Kim Jong-il. Sun Byok says this painting has gotten him a lot of attention overseas. I had no idea that people would love this painting so much. I just want to show that Kim Jong-il is only a human being. It seems like the North Korean people live on another planet because they're kept separated by the government. I want to say that we are living in a globalized society, and I think Marilyn Monroe is a good symbol of that. This satirical portrait was the centerpiece at exhibitions in Atlanta and Washington earlier this year. That's a long way from where Sung Byuk got his start in North Korea. He says he always enjoyed painting. In his early 20s, he was drafted as an official propaganda artist. He says back then, he made ironic pictures too, but you'd have to be North Korean to get the joke. Paintings there make fun of South Korean capitalism. That's how satirical art is used to educate the North Korean people. We'd say the South Koreans are slaves under the control of the American military bastards. Song Byuk says he was proud to create that kind of art. But that all changed when North Korea fell into famine in the 1990s. My father and I crossed the Tumen River to China to find food. But when we tried to cross back over, the river had flooded. My father was suddenly swept away. I called out for help, but instead, the North Korean border guards arrested me and put me in prison. That's when I realized there was something wrong with this system. During four months in a labor camp, Sung Byuk watched people die around him. He even lost most of his right index finger because of a bad infection. It took him a while to relearn how to use a paintbrush. In 2002, he fled to China again, but this time made it all the way to South Korea. Sung Byuk entered a university and began creating images that criticized the Pyongyang regime. He says he parodies the North Korean propaganda style to show that freedom there is an illusion. But Sung Byuk says he still questions how free he really is to express himself, even in South Korea. At my first exhibition, some of my professors, classmates, and art critics told me that I shouldn't show some of my work, like the Marilyn Monroe parody, and that I could get into trouble for displaying it. But I didn't listen, and I did it anyway. That exhibition in Seoul was a huge success. Sung Byuk got a lot of media coverage. He was dubbed the anti-North Korea artist. That's an image he might have trouble shaking, says Han Jin Man. He's one of Sung Byuk's former professors at Seoul's Honggik University. He says Sung Byuk uses art to express his pain from back in North Korea. Perhaps when he overcomes that, he can start creating other images. But Han says he hopes Sung Byuk doesn't limit himself to North Korean themes just because that's what people expect of him. And Sung Byuk says he wants to be more than just a North Korea artist. Inside his studio, Sung Byuk shows me one of his most recent works, a painting of a dog that he says symbolizes governments that don't respect human rights. That could easily represent Kim Jong-il. But even though Kim didn't respect his people while alive, Sung Byuk says he'll show some respect for his former leader now that he's dead. In the end, Kim Jong-il proved to be like any other human. I will honor his death and I will no longer paint any pictures of him. There's no need to parody him anymore. But Sung Byuk says Kim's son, new leader Kim Jong-un, is still fair game. 
for the world. I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. From North Korean propagandist to satirist in exile, see the work of Sung Byok in the latest global cartoon slideshow that's at theworld.org. Let's talk ladies' undergarments for a moment, specifically the question, how long have bras been around? Well, one answer is 1914. That's when Mary Phelps Jacob patented what we know as the modern brassiere here in the U.S. But that's not the whole story. According to the University of Innsbruck in Austria, bras date back to at least the 15th century. To find out more, we've got Hilary Davidson on the line with us. Hilary Davidson is a fashion curator at the Museum of London. Um, in much of the Western world today, especially the U.S., Hillary, uh, bras are everywhere. It's pretty much taken for granted that women wear bras. Uh, why should we be surprised that women were doing the same in the 1400s? Well, this is what's so exciting about the finds. We can assume and we can wonder about exactly what women are doing with their busts, but this is the first time we've had really hard material evidence to say, hey, um, you know, we've got the same kind of concerns. Some women wanted to enhance, some people wanted to reduce the size of their bust, and um, that they came to really similar conclusions to us. And so tell me about this uh, bra from the 15th century. Well, there's been three or four pieces found, and they seem to correspond with what the documentary evidence at the time calls breast bags. One of them has kind of round cups that, in effect, would have lifted and separated like modern bras. Uh, another one sort of is more like hanging a pair of bags over your shoulder and, and letting the, the difference in the size of the, the bag and the size of the bust hold everything up. Do you have a sense of how the bra took off, uh, if we can trace it back to Austria in the 15th century? Did it take off from there across Europe? Were there other parts of the world that were also developing this uh, support system? Well, this is the thing that we don't know and, and why uh, these finds just open up so many questions. The way clothing was cut from, the say, the 14th century is very tight across the bust, and it kind of has a, a certain amount of bust support in it. Um, we do have certainly evidence of breast bands and things like that um, much, much earlier, say, in Cretan society, in Roman society. But really, after the 15th century, the thing that takes over are stays, which we perhaps know better now as corsets. And they're doing something else entirely. They're kind of lifting from the bottom and kind of crushing the breasts into a smooth shape. So this might actually be the last gasp of the brassiere if it existed before that until the 20th century. Wow, that, that's interesting. So women perhaps just didn't wear bras for a couple hundred years? Well, they didn't. What they wore was basically some kind of chemise or smock, which was a, a linen garment as the first thing they put on. And then over the top of that, you put on some sort of stiffened bodice, um, stays, corsets, just something that gives you a little bit of support, but it's running from the bust right down to the waist um, and doesn't have this kind of cropped quality. And it certainly doesn't, well, lift and separate. It's, it's really to kind of uh, lift but create a single line around the bosom. And what makes these pieces, they look so modern because you've got sort of two two individual breasts that were, which we don't see for hundreds of years. Hilary Davidson, fashion curator at the Museum of London. Thanks so much. My pleasure. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Just ahead, how pickpockets are planning to score big at the Olympics. We, we go to London this year. This year is the big game. And later, the inspiration behind an award-winning Swedish barbershop quartet. 
One day, a friend of ours found some clips of Barbershop online. It was actually The Simpsons. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Tennis star Rafael Nadal made a painful announcement today. The Spaniard said he's pulling out of the London 2012 Olympics. Nadal, who's been suffering from tendinitis in his knee, called it one of the saddest moments in his career. It's also a blow to anyone who is looking forward to seeing Nadal defend his Olympic title in London. All visitors in town for the Games will also share this worry hanging on to their valuables. British police say organized gangs of pickpockets are coming to London from South America and Eastern Europe. The BBC's Chris Rogers spoke to a group of petty criminals in Barcelona, Spain, who are planning to do just that. His report begins with what British police are doing to try and preempt the threat. An early morning wake-up call in London's East End for a suspected gang of Romanian pickpockets. This is Operation Podium, targeting Olympic-related crime, one of the biggest threats to the Games next to terrorism. Detective Inspector Mark Teodorini is overseeing the first of many raids on homes rented by foreign gangs. We know where people are, we know the addresses they're using, we know the vehicles that they're using. We'll come through the door, we will come through very hard, and if you've got anything on you, you'll be arrested. But more gangs are planning to head to Britain. 900 miles away, one of those gangs is preparing its Olympic operation. We, 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 we go to London this year. This year is the big game. Johnny, Mario and Danny are part of a network of 50 Romanian pickpockets. They're responsible for some of the crime statistics that make Barcelona one of the riskiest places in the world to keep bags and wallets. So you all have your own role. Just tell me who does what. So you, your... Distractor. What does Mario do? Your... Could be distractor, could be the pickpocketing because have a lot of experience. And then Danny... Danny... Is fast. He's the, 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 the faster, the, the faster. They boast all it takes is one second to steal. They demonstrate a tactic named after the footballer that dances when he scores, Ronaldinho. Hello. Look, look, look. I don't know. Johnny approaches me with a map, while Mario and Danny pretend to be drunk, forcing me to dance. Then they run off in different directions. Danny returns, proudly holding my wallet. I didn't notice a thing. It all happened so quickly. Barcelona, very good. Very good, the pickpockets. <laughs> Cameras, laptops, and phones are sold on the Romanian black market, but they prefer cash from wallets. I steal to eat, for my family, so I can dress well. I can't explain why I pickpocket. It's in my blood. It's my life. It's very normal for me. I steal from people who have lots of money. It really doesn't bother me. I'm young. I live my life. It's six o'clock in the morning, the sun is rising and tourists are pouring out of the nightclubs, and some of them are heading down to the beach to keep the party going. But I can see that every move is being watched by gangs of pickpockets. Only a trained eye has any chance of spotting a pickpocket as they strike. 
And look, 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 Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho. Johnny points out other Romanian thieves operating here. They're too quick to stop and, I'm warned, too dangerous to confront. Hey, it's the wallet. The wallet is now at him. Yeah. Luke takes the money and all of this. Look, 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 look the guy. He don't know he don't have wallet. These Romanian pickpockets are about to give up Barcelona. I caught up with them in an internet cafe where they are planning their Olympic operation. Londres, Londres. So you're looking at the shopping centre near the Olympic Village. Here, look, man. How many people? The London buses, uh, touristic buses. Yeah. You can go upstairs. Uh, so buses are a good target for you. All that lies between them and Olympic gold is a coach ticket for nine euros, or so they think. Nick Downing is the head of the Metropolitan Police's Operation Podium. We might not always catch people in the in the act, but what we want to do is prevent and disrupt their activity. It is going to be a hostile environment for um, anyone to come to, to London during the Games. So my advice to them is very much don't bother. The BBC's Chris Rogers reporting from Barcelona. And for a visual of the risks, you can see Chris get his wallet stolen by those pickpocket pros at theworld.org. Africa is a continent awash in guns. It's not the most armed place in the world, but loose regulations have meant that Africa is a haven for people who sell guns and weapons. This week, though, one country said enough is enough. The tiny Indian Ocean island of Mauritius this week denied an operating license to a couple of gun runners. Mauritius said no to two men associated with jailed Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Kathy Lynn Austin is executive director of the Conflict Awareness Project. She led a recent investigation into gun running in Mauritius as well as in South Africa and the United Arab Emirates. How did the island nation of Mauritius become uh, what you describe as an international gun running operation? Well, the arms traffickers were looking for a place of respectability, but also a place that would make it easy for them to do their business. This was an international arms trafficking ring. The tentacle stretched from South Africa to Australia to the United Arab Emirates to the United States. So an offshore nation, which seemed to be one of the best governed nations um, in Africa, this would provide them with both the infrastructure they needed to launch this gun running operation, but also the cover of respectability. So what kind of courage did it take for a little African island nation to withstand the pressure from gun runners? Was it an easy decision for Mauritius, do you think? I think Mauritius felt very much under pressure. Also, one of the ministers of the government was involved. His um, brother was the CEO of this particular company that was looking for this air operation certificate. Um, They were very concerned that this whole issue would implode on the honeymoon island of Mauritius. But nonetheless, the Mauritius government did the right thing. The Mauritius government said, look, we do not want these traffickers on our island. We're going to deny them this air operation certificate. And we're going to launch an investigation into the criminal activities. And we're going to cooperate with other countries of the world to uphold our international obligations and try to prevent these kinds of gun runners from taking advantage of our kinds of nations for weapons into other countries, other conflict zones like Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Syria. So the gunrunners in question, Sergei Denisenko and Andrei Kosalapov, they are associated with convicted gunrunner Victor Boot. Who are they? What do you know about them? Sergei Denisenko, Andrei Kosalapov were former lieutenants in Victor Boot's arms trafficking network. 
Sergei Denisenko is on a U.S. government special designated list. It means that it is illegal for any American entity to do business with him because of his ties to Victor Boot and because of his former arms trafficking activities in Africa. These arms traffickers were going to make a lot of money off of the lethal business they were hoping to conduct in conflict zones and busting UN sanctions. What we did discover is that there were a number of American individuals and companies who were also involved in this particular trafficking network. Hmm. Their operations could be considered in violation of U.S. law. Well, what does the U.S. Justice Department have to say about that? The U.S. government has issued a statement saying, in fact, any American businesses or individuals who are involved with Sergei Denisenko in this illicit trafficking network could be in violation of U.S. law. You know, there are something like 15 African countries at war right now. Why don't more countries in Africa try and put a stop to the arms and weapons dealers? Well, this is the point. I'm here in New York to present my findings before the United Nations delegates that are attending the Conference for the International Arms Trade Treaty Negotiations and to the world to basically say, look, here are very live arms trafficking networks. Here are the kinds of techniques they use to carry out their illicit operation. Here are the loopholes they exploit in domestic laws. What we need is a very strong arms trade treaty in place that creates an international regulatory system to curtail the activities of these arms trafficking middlemen. So I'm here in New York hoping that the United Nations and the governments of the world will do the right things and come out with a very strong arms trade treaty to regulate and curtail these kinds of activities. Kathy Lynn Austin, Executive Director of the Conflict Awareness Project. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on your show. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Algeria's independence from France. That freedom was won through a war that saw terrible atrocities committed by both sides. These days, relations between the two nations have pretty much normalized. France is Algeria's largest trading partner. Hundreds of thousands of Algerians live in France. But there's a small group of Algerians who have never found that reconciliation. They are the Arqui. During the war, the Arqui fought on the French side against their own countrymen, and they paid a terrible price for it. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Paris. 75-year-old Serge Carrel was born with an Arabic name in his native Algeria. Sitting beside the river Seine in Paris, he recalls how everything, even his name, would change. It started when he joined the French army in 1957. I enlisted, becoming an Arqui, because my father had fought for the French in World War I. Both my brothers fought for France in Indochina. For me, serving France was the obvious thing to do. It was impossible to consider joining the other side. Carrel was one of some 250,000 Arqui who defended colonial France from Algerian independence fighters. When France was driven out in 1962, he expected to retreat to Europe with his French comrades. But our commanders gathered us all together, took away our weapons, and just wished us good luck. I thought they were joking. They weren't. The French army, under the government of Charles de Gaulle, left tens of thousands of Arqui behind. The victorious Algerians began to slaughter them and their families. Carrel was caught within days and imprisoned. Each morning, my captors paraded me before the townsfolk who would beat me, spit on me, throw rocks at me. I was tortured all over my body. They cut slivers off my tongue with wire cutters. 
By some miracle, Carrel managed to escape and reach France. He was expecting a hero's welcome. Instead, they stuck him in an internment camp. It was not Guantanamo, but it was similar. It was a shame of France sticking families behind barbed wire like that. It was shameful. Carrel, like all the Arki, was eventually released. He went on to rebuild his life, finding work, starting a family. But he says France has never treated the Aki well. He gets that some Algerians consider him a traitor, but he can't understand how the French look down on him, sometimes in humiliating and very public ways. In 2006, a French politician named Georges Fresh called the Aki subhuman. The French army massacred your people in Algeria during the colonial period, he cried, during a confrontation in Montpellier. And yet you still licked the Frenchman's boots. Some 90,000 Aki managed to reach France after the war, and they are still waiting for an official apology from Paris, says Fatima Besnassi. Besnassi is the daughter of an Aki and heads a national Aki association. Il y a probablement une honte, mais moi ce que j'aimerais, c'est que cette honte soit avouée. France is still probably ashamed, she says, but I want that shame to be publicly stated. Above all, I want a French president to declare that France recognizes its responsibility for abandoning the Aki in 1962 and how that led to the massacres in Algeria. France must also assume responsibility for interning our parents in camps. Movement towards accepting responsibility has been slow. In 2001, President Jacques Chirac said that France hadn't known how to protect her own children, a reference to the Aki. In 2012, President Nicolas Sarkozy said that France, quote, should have protected the Aki from history. France's new president, François Hollande, has said he would flat out apologize. The Aki are waiting. But while official France drags its feet, there are signs that French society in general has come to accept France's role in the Aki tragedy. Even the French army has stepped forward. At the Army Museum in Paris, there's now an exhibit on the military's 130-year presence in Algeria. In it, the army recognizes its widespread use of torture during the Algerian war. And there's even a section, albeit small, on the Arki themselves. The museum's Emmanuel Ronvoisy says 30 years ago, this exhibit would have been unthinkable. But he says times are changing, and this is just the beginning of a new openness about the French colonial period. And that's not all. This year, there's been a slew of books, articles, and documentary films on the subject. Historian Benjamin Stora says he thinks the Aki have been given their rightful place in history, even if the government hasn't officially apologized. He says the Aki now have their own national day, September 25th. They have monuments in their name. We now have more French films about the war in Algeria than you Americans have about Vietnam. But it's not enough. It seems the Aki's wounds are too deep to heal. For Serge Carrel, turning the page hinges on what France's president says or doesn't say. The state must speak up, he says, since it was the state that abandoned him. My life is good now, but I have not forgotten anything. President Hollande, he made the promise, but he must act on it as soon as possible, because we, Arki, are all dying off. The torture and years of misery, he says, have taken their toll. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Paris. 
Coming up, a crackdown on nightlife in Mumbai, India. But before we take a break, here's a very quick geo-quiz. So quick, in fact, we don't even have time for geo-quiz music. We just want you to name the Indian state of which Mumbai is the capital. Simple enough, right? We'll be right back with the answer. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Back to the city that's home to Bollywood for the answer to today's geo-quiz. The city is Mumbai, of course. But we asked you to name the state of which Mumbai is the capital. That would be Maharashtra, a.k.a. the richest state in India. Mumbai is a cosmopolitan city with an active nightlife for those who can afford it. But there's been a crackdown on bars and nightclubs there in recent weeks. The BBC's Rajini Vardhanathan reports from Mumbai. In a break from the monsoon rains, a group of 20 and 30-somethings have gathered by the seafront in one of Mumbai's hippest areas. The freedom they're calling for is the right to be able to party in India's most progressive city. Many of the crowd are dressed in black to mourn what they say is the death of Mumbai's nightlife. In recent weeks, bars have been raided by the police... Some people have been detained overnight and tested for drugs. Other partygoers claim they've been wrongly accused of being prostitutes just for wearing short skirts. Protesters here accuse the authorities of moral policing. When we are trying to do something like go out and have a good time and, you know, do it peacefully without harassing everybody, why are we being harassed by the police? We, are, we work hard, we want to play hard and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. There are dozens of different parties taking place in Mumbai, India's entertainment centre, from live music gigs to dance parties. There are as many as 70 people in this glitzy bar, drinking cocktails and dancing, and it's only Tuesday night. But now, as people enter this bar, they're being issued with paper alcohol permits. You need one of these if you want to drink here or even at home. It's because the 1949 Bombay Prohibition Act is being enforced again. And it's not just older laws causing concern. Last year, Mumbai raised the drinking age to 21 for beer and 25 for spirits. It's one of the highest in the world. Campaign groups say the laws are out of date. Mumbai's police have been criticised by many, but they say they're just enforcing the law and cracking down on nuisance night spots in a city where many couldn't ever afford to drink in a bar. It's evening at the St Anthony's Sports Club and these teenagers are taking part in a hockey practice. Anandani Thakur, who runs the club, is one of many who supports the police. The youth of today are paid very heavily, paid very highly. They get so much money they don't know what to do with it. So they love to splurge. They splurge on bars, pubs. They go on drinking, they also indulge in drugs and other kind of activities. Back at the protest, the campaigners are singing the national anthem. They say they're proud to be Indian. Two-thirds of the country's under 35, and many want to drink and party in a way their parents never did. 
they say this isn't just about the right to have a good time, but about giving them the freedom to do what they want in a changing country where old and new values often clash. That was the BBC's Rajini Vardhanathan in Mumbai. The Olympic Games in London are just a week away, but let's not forget other great competitions that are out there. And with a score of 8,253 points, an average of 91.7, your 2012 first place gold medal champions, Ringmasters! This was the scene earlier this month at the Rose Garden Arena in Portland, Oregon. But ringmasters don't play basketball, they sing barbershop. Oh, and they're Swedish. Here's the world's Alex Galifant with today's Global Hit. Strange, there was no warning what would be in store. For as in a story... Ringmaster's victory at the Barbershop Harmony Society's International Convention will live long in the memory. Their winning score, for instance, 91.7. They'll always remember that. Yeah, you bet. I spoke with Emmanuel Roll and Jacob Sternberg, two of the four members of Ringmaster's, via Skype. They're now back home in Sweden. I wanted to know how other U.S. barbershop quartets have reacted to their win. After all, there aren't many musical styles as quintessentially American as this one. They uh, are so supportive. Uh, it's almost unbelievable. Like, they were excited that someone from outside of the States could do it, you know? Maybe it's because every barbershop quartet knows how hard it is to get that gold medal. Ringmasters have been honing their skills for years now. Jacob Sternberg says the initial spark came from TV. One day, a friend of ours uh, found you know, some clips of Barbershop online. It was actually hit through The Simpsons, an episode, when they do, a, like, a Barbershop quartet. Boom, 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 baby on They were intrigued. Oh, that sounds like fun. We should do that. The young Swedes sought out the real stuff, watching clips of top American quartets like Vocal Spectrum. In 2006, when they started rehearsing together, they literally memorized the sound of the songs. You know, every vowel and every word, so it doesn't stick out from the other American quartets, I guess. In 2007, they traveled to the U.S. and placed 10th in the collegiate competition for barbershop singers under 25. In 2008, they turned that into first place. And they just kept going, all the way to their gold medal this month in the main international competition. Each year, quartets from all over the world compete, although the vast majority are from the U.S. Ringmasters is the first non-North American quartet to win. In fact, uh, until 2005, we hadn't even had Canadians win. And so this was uh, unprecedented, really. This is Lauren May. He edits the Barbershop Harmony Society's in-house magazine, The Harmonizer. And May says ringmasters have distinguished themselves not only in their performances, their vocal technique, musicality and showmanship, but also in the way they've assimilated the friendly culture of barbershop. When ringmasters was on stage, they said, you know, in Sweden, uh, we're not really that religious. But I think we have found our religion now. Uh, And that was... uh, 
speaking of the barbershop culture, it's so much more than just the music. It's the uh, the giving and it's the fraternity. It's amazing. Beyond Ringmasters, it was a banner year for other quartets from outside the U.S. too. The college trophy went to Lemon Squeezy, also from Sweden, and the silver medal in the main competition was won by the Musical Island Boys, a barbershop quartet from New Zealand. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. By the way, the barbershop organization for women, Sweet Adeline's International, was the real trailblazer here. A Swedish quartet called Salt won their competition back in 2007. You can find out more on Salt and Ringmasters at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.